Uh, I hope you uh, picked up a copy of the uh, sermon notes as we continue uh, in our study of the book of Philippians, where we are in chapter 2. Uh, in chapter 1, uh, the emphasis uh, was to live, uh, to advance the gospel of Christ. And uh, in the first 18 verses of chapter 2, the emphasis is to think uh, with the mind of Christ. Uh, these verses, uh, verses 1 through 18 on the mind of Christ, uh, can be divided into three sections uh, which you see there in your notes. Uh, first, we have the exhortation uh, to have the mind of Christ in verses 1 through 8. Uh, next, the exaltation of the mind of Christ in verses 9 through 11. And then he closes this portion of the book out uh, with a section on expressing. How do we express the mind of Christ in the context of the uh, corporate church body? And that's found in verses 12 through 18. Now, we have already examined in the last couple of messages uh, the first section on the exhortation to have the mind of Christ, but I would like us to just very briefly review uh, what we have already learned about the mind of Christ before we move on. So look at that uh, first paragraph of review there in your uh, sermon notes. It just sort of sums up uh, what we discovered. In Philippians 2, uh, we discover the mind of Christ, uh, which inspired all the words, all the works of Christ recorded in the Gospels. Now, that's just pause right there. That's, just, that's an awesome thing to, to consider. Uh, what we're seeing here in Philippians 2, as in no other place in Scripture, it, it, we see what motivated Christ to say what He said, uh, to do the works that He did. Uh, simply put, going on, the mind of Christ did not regard equality with God to be used for His advantage, but rather for the advantage of those He created. Uh, this attitude led Christ to empty his deity into human flesh, to become a servant in the universe in which he had been sovereign, and then humble himself by dying on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of humanity. The mind of Christ led Jesus to treat sinful men as if they were worthy of his love and service when they were not worthy. Uh, the same mind that is in Christ is to control his followers in relating to others. Now, it's important to remember this teaching on the mind of Christ doesn't just come in a vacuum. Uh, Paul is addressing a very specific issue uh, that the uh, church is grappling with, and that issue was internal conflict. Uh, they were struggling at this time with disunity, uh, a disunity which threatened their credibility as a witness to advance the gospel of Christ and to stand against the opposition they were encountering there in the city of Philippi. Paul knew that united uh, they would stand, but divided they would fall. He also knew that the key to restoring their unity and maintaining unity in the church was for the members of the church to develop the mindset or the attitude of Christ in relating to others. And in verses 1 through 8, 
we discovered five truths about the mind of Christ which literally are the key to unity in the church. But let me also say key to unity in marriage, in a family, in whatever arena of life uh, that this could be applied to. So again, this is all review. Let's just briefly look at these five truths. And before I move into them, let me just say, I am so appreciative of this church family. Uh, You live this out each and every day. Uh, I'm not saying we've arrived or that we're perfect. Uh, We're to grow ever more in God's love. Uh, We're always to increase in these graces. But I do want to commend you because I have seen in and through you uh, this lived out as you've related uh, to one another. And the first truth that we discovered is the mind of Christ is sharing with others the blessings of Christ. You remember verses 1 and 2. We said that in the Greek text, it would be more accurately interpreted uh, since you have received encouragement from Christ, since you have known the consolations of His love, uh, since you have known His compassion and affection, Then Paul says, okay, you demonstrate that same mind. You be united in that same attitude uh, with that purpose uh, to display that towards one another. So the application that you see there, since I have been the recipient of Christ's unconditional love and blessings, I am obligated to pass on His unconditional love and blessings to others. I'm obligated. I am a debtor. To God's grace. The second truth that we saw is that the mind of Christ is thinking about others with the attitude of Christ. Uh, verse 3 says, do what? Nothing, absolutely nothing like Jesus from selfishness or empty conceit. Don't do anything uh, out of uh, a self-centered perspective or a desire to put yourself up on a pedestal to be noticed and receive the applause of men. But like Christ, with lowliness of mind, We're to regard others more important than ourselves. We're to let lead in our thoughts as we relate to one another. That I am here to serve you, uh, to minister uh, to your needs. And so the application is love is a deliberate decision to invest in the life of another person that will often run contrary to my feelings. Love is a deliberate decision to invest in the life of another person that will often, initially, run contrary to my feelings. I can't wait for my feelings uh, to step out and invest and to act in love. No, I step out out of what? Obedience to God because He's worthy of such obedience as I would follow in His footsteps. Look at the third truth. The mind of Christ is looking at others Through the eyes of Christ. Verse 4, don't look to your own interests, but look to the interest of others. And the application being, I am to establish as the number one focus in my life, not to strategize and work for my good, but for the good of others. True joy is found in making others joyful. The fourth truth that we saw is the mind of Christ is embracing others with the arms of Christ, where it says God, uh, Jesus didn't uh, regard equality with God a thing to grasp, to selfishly cling on to. 
Uh, he, he let go, in other words, of everything that would prevent him uh, from becoming a man and embracing you and I with that unconditional love. So the application is, I am to reach out and accept others as Christ accepted me. Remembering Christ accepted me when I was what? Unlovable and at my worst. So since he reached out and embraced me when I was unlovable at my worst, that's the attitude I'm have towards others, even when they are unlovable, even when they are at their worst. And then the fifth truth, the mind of Christ is loving others with the heart of Christ. In other words, how far was Christ's love willing to go? To the point of death, verse 8 tells us. So the application is love is willing to make sacrifices, bear shame, and experience pain for the benefit of one unworthy of such love. That's the thrust. That's the point of the passage. That love is willing to invest to the point of sacrifice, to the point of shame, and even experiencing great pain for the benefit of one unworthy of such love. So that is review. Now this morning, we want to move into the second uh, section on the mind of Christ, the exaltation of the mind of Christ, and that's verses 9 through 11, and uh, we won't get any further than this portion uh, this morning. We'll save that last section, expressing the mind of Christ in verses 12 through 18 that you see on the back of your notes. We'll save that for next Sunday. But uh, I hope you have your uh, Bibles open to the book of Philippians, and let's read uh, these uh, wonderful verses uh, verses 9, 10, 11, and we need to, of course, see them in their context. Look at verse 9. Therefore, also God highly exalted him. Who's the him referring to? Jesus, uh, the one who emptied himself of his deity uh, into human flesh uh, to become the servant of man. And then die that humiliating death on the cross. So God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now what I want us to do is take a very simple approach uh, to these magnificent verses. You see in your notes five questions uh, related to Christ's exaltation. And for each question, I will provide you a one-word answer that will hopefully help you uh, grasp the power and significance of what is being taught and, uh, and hold on to it. So the first question, what was the reason for Christ? exaltation. What was the reason for Christ's exaltation? Now notice when it says in verse 9 that God highly exalted him, the words highly exalted translate a compound verb in the Greek text which means to raise up or to lift up and to raise up above all other things to the highest possible place. And this, of course, is referring to what? Christ's resurrection from the dead and his, what? Ascension to heaven 
where he was declared to be God as he sat in his rightful place on the throne of God as the supreme authority of all. Now think with me. What was the primary reason from man's perspective that Jesus was mocked, ridiculed, and eventually crucified? What was it? He claimed to be God. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be Yahweh of the Old Testament. Jehovah, the great I Am. He claimed to be the eternal Son of God, that He was one with the Father. And claiming to be God, He was found guilty of blasphemy. And He was nailed on the cross as a blasphemer of God. And when they nailed Him to the cross, do you remember what they said? In Matthew's Gospel, He says they were hurling abuse at Him and wagging their heads and saying, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In other words, if you are who you claim to be, well then good golly, use your power and authority as God to save yourself. And the Bible says they continued to mock Jesus by saying he saved others, but he can't even save himself. Now do not miss this. They rejected Jesus claimed to be God because Jesus did not think, he did not act in the way that they believed God should think and act. I mean, they thought if Jesus were God, he would use his power and authority of God to save himself, to destroy the Romans, establish his kingdom, and then force everyone into submission. See, they could not conceive, they could not even begin to conceive of a God who out of love, pure love, would empty himself into human flesh in order to serve his creation and then humble himself to die on the cross to secure salvation as a free gift extended to sinners. Now going back to Philippians 2.9, The key word to understand the reason why Jesus was exalted is the very first word in verse 9. The word therefore that takes us back to verses what? 5 and 8. 5 through 8. Which, and this is important to see, in the Greek text, verses 5 through 8 are just one sentence. Just one continual sentence. The significance of this is that in verses 5 through 8, listen to this now, this is important. The emphasis is not placed on the fact that God became a man to die on the cross for our sins. It talks about that, but that's not where the emphasis is. The emphasis is not on what Jesus did. The emphasis is on what kind of God He is that would motivate Him to take such action. We discover His mind in verses 5 through 8. We discover the way He looks at His creation the way He thinks about us, the way He values us. In other words, the fact that Jesus would not use His equality with God to come down from the cross to save Himself, but instead, out of love, died on the cross to save others, to save sinners, that demonstrated that He was truly God because love is at the very heart, 
at the very essence and nature of God's being. So what was the, what was the reason for Christ? Vindication is the word. God the Father was vindicating Jesus. He was saying to these individuals that had mocked him, that had ridiculed him, that had called him a blasphemer. No, you got it wrong. Jesus is God. And he demonstrated that he was God by all the things you'd never understood. By his love. By his sacrifice. Acts 2, chapter 30, uh, verse 36, sort of ca- captures the spirit of the vindication. Uh, if you're familiar with the verse, it says, Therefore let all the house of Israel, this is Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. See, there's the spirit of it. You mocked him, you ridiculed him, you, you called him a blasphemer, and you crucified him. But I'm telling you, this Jesus is God. And so God raised him, God ascended him to that throne in heaven as a vindication to demonstrate Jesus truly was everything that he said he was. He was God. He was the supreme authority. Now, what is the title of Christ's exaltation. What is the title of Christ's exaltation? And the answer is what? Lord. Lord. Verse 9 says that he bestowed on him a name that is above every name. That it, what, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every to confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. That Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, take your Bibles and turn over to Isaiah 45. And the reason I have you turn over to Isaiah 45 is because in these verses, he's quoting from Isaiah 45, which is not by accident. He's doing that for a purpose, to demonstrate that truly Jesus is God. He is the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the Jehovah, the great I Am, the supreme Authority. Look at Isaiah 45. Let's begin reading at verse 22. This is God speaking. He says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. I am the great I am. And there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. And then here's the quote. That to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And Paul is quoting this in Philippians chapter 2. They will say of me, only in the Lord our righteousness and strength. Men will come to him and all who were angry of him shall be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. In other words, his title was Lord, which in the New Testament word Lord is equivalent to what? Jehovah, Yahweh, the great I Am. Now, folks, what this does 
And let me be very, very clear. This, this is a death blow to something that has literally infected the churches in the United States of America. And that's just easy believism. This notion that you can receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and to get your ticket into heaven, and then you can determine at some other time whether you're going to follow Him in obedience as Lord. That is totally foreign to the Scriptures. The sa- the sim- here's the sa- I've shared this with you before. This is the simplest way I know how to say it. The Savior is Christ the Lord. And that's what God is saying in Philippians 2. This Jesus, I've exalted to vindicate Him as God. And I've bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, and that name is Lord, Jehovah, the great I Am, the supreme authority. The Savior is Christ the Lord. So yes, salvation is a free gift. Salvation is receiving the free gift of who? Jesus is the gift. And you can't divide him up. You take all of the gift or you get none of it. You can't say as as God extends the gift of Jesus to you for salvation. Say, well, I like the Savior part. I'll take that. But I don't want the Lord part. And see, what's happened in our, our churches are filled with people who have never repented of their sin. They've never bowed to the authority of God. But because they prayed a prayer and because they believed Jesus died on the cross for their sin, that they're going to heaven. But they've never bowed the knee. They've never acknowledged who He truly is, that He is God. Jehovah, Yahweh, He is Lord. So my simple point is, those who refuse Him as Lord can never receive Him as Savior. Again, the Savior is Christ the Lord. So you can't divide His two offices. So it's a death blow to easy believism. So, that brings us to the third question. What should be our response to Christ's exaltation? Well, that's so simple. You can probably guess what that word is. Surrender. Surrender. And let, let's just talk about the Lordship of Christ. And I, and I know this is not in your notes. I'm going to be giving you right now. I'm going to be moving fast. I'll give you a lot of verses. Uh, I would just sit back and, and, and relax. Uh, I, I can provide this uh, to you uh, as, as a review over the next week, week or two in, in written form. Uh, but let me just move through this, uh, just with several questions. And it, well, why surrender to the Lordship of Christ? Why? Well, let me give you four reasons. First, it is the reason Christ died and rose again. Romans 14, 9 says, For to this end, to this end, for this purpose, Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and the living. So why would you surrender to Jesus? Because that is the reason He died and rose again, to be your Lord. Second is the reason Christ saved me. The reason He saved me. 2 Corinthians 5, 15. And He, Jesus, died for all, that they who live, that's you and I, should no longer live for themselves, 
but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Third reason is God knows what is best for me. Why would I not surrender to his lordship? Why would I be so foolish to think that I can run my life better than his? Why would I think my wisdom is greater than his sovereign wisdom? Jeremiah 29, 11, God says, For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then the fourth reason why you would surrender to the Lordship of Christ is that the reward outweighs the sacrifice. Yes, there are sacrifices. Yes, there are consequences to surrendering to Jesus as Lord. This church in Philippi knew those consequences. I mentioned Philippi was the heart of the emperor cult that worshiped the emperor as God, as Lord. And it's no accident that the name that was bestowed on Jesus that Paul talks about is the same word that they used to worship Caesar. Remember, and I shared with you in our introduction, what they were faced with in Philippi was because they recognized only Jesus that they refused to worship Caesar. And this put them in a head-on collision with the Roman Empire. And this is what brought them persecution. This is why they were so overwhelmed by attacks. Why many of them were put into prison, eventually tortured, many of them put to death. It was because they had surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And yes, it does have its consequences. And sometimes those consequences are painful as you step out in obedience and you surrender to Him no matter the cost. But again, the reward outweighs the sacrifice. I think of Hebrews 11. Here's a great example. Verse 26. He says, He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking ahead to the great reward. He was looking ahead to the great reward. So that's why we should surrender. Well, what is surrender? How would you define surrender to the Lordship of Christ? Let's put it on very simple terms. Number one, I submit to Christ's authority. If I acknowledge Him as Lord, it means I submit to His authority. Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, you wish to come after me? You wish to know me, to follow me? Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And keep in mind, the cross was a symbol of what? Pain, a symbol of execution. Jesus says, if you're going to know me, if you're going to follow me, that means it's going to be at times a life of pain, a life of difficulty. You're going to have to say no to self. You're going to have to say yes to me, and many times that's going to take you right into pain, like it took this Philippian church into this head-on collision with the Roman Empire. Uh, Matthew 6, 24, together with Romans 6, 16, no one can serve what? Two masters. It's impossible to go in two different directions at the same time. And in the same way, it's impossible to serve two masters at the same time. And then don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey. 
So whose slave are you? It's the one that you're obeying, the one that you're following. So what does it mean to surrender to the Lordship of Christ? I submit to Christ's authority. Second, it means I serve Christ's agenda. It's not my agenda, it's His agenda. God is not the means to serve my end, and that's what we've, we, what we've done to God, especially in Western culture, where, you know, God is not only our ticket to heaven, but He's our ticket to get all our dreams come true. He's almost like a, a, a genie that pops out of a bottle to, to make our every wish come true. Again, totally foreign to the New Testament. We are God's means to accomplish what? His ends. And it's in serving His ends. It's serving His... That's where we find true joy. That's where we try find true satisfaction and fulfillment. Matthew 10, verses 24 and 25, Jesus said, A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be what? Like his teacher and the servant like his master. In other words, who sets the agenda in the classroom? The student or the teacher? I hope the teacher. Who sets the work schedule? The slave or the master? Why? It's the master that sets the, the work schedule. In the same way, we serve Christ's agenda. And then third, I seek Christ's approval. I live to gain his approval, not the approval of my peers. Not the approval of my co-workers, not the approval of my family, but the approval of Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.10, Paul wrote, Does that make you think now that I am seeking man's approval or God's? Am I trying to please men? If I were trying to win human approval, I should never be Christ's servant. I could never be Christ's servant if I'm trying to win human approval. That's an impossibility. So what does it mean to surrender to the Lordship of Christ? I submit to His authority, to serve His agenda, to seek His approval. And then, how do I surrender to the Lordship of Christ? How do I surrender to the Lordship of Christ? Let's not make this complicated. First, I sacrifice all I am and I possess to Christ. I sacrifice that to Him. Romans 12 says what? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your what? Your bodies as what? Living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. Holy and acceptable to God. You say, wait a minute, Andy, stop right there. I'm not holy and acceptable. Oh, you need to understand. Where do you lay the sacrifice of your life? On the altar of the what? The cross. That same cross that brought you salvation, has been transformed now into an altar where you lay your life. And that altar of the cross was sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches that whatever touches that cross, sanctified by the blood, is declared holy by God, justified by God, sanctified, glorified by God. So God accepts my sacrifice, not on the basis of who I am, but who Jesus is and what he accomplished for me. And so I say, God, I lay it all down. Lord, I yield to you the members of this body. That they would not be instruments of sin, but instruments of righteousness. 
I yield this body to you, trusting that you will give me the grace, that you'll be the power work in me to wage war against the lust of my flesh, to win that war, to win the war over the world, over my adversary, through faith in Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit working in me. I trust you'll give me grace to bounce my thoughts off of that which is unholy, not pure, unacceptable, and bounce them on that which is pure, holy, and acceptable. That you'll give me grace to... My mind would be set on those things which are above where my life is hid with Christ. I, I give you my affections, my emotions, that Christ would be my first love. Christ would be my first passion and pursuit. I surrender to you my will to give you my uncompromising allegiance, not out of duty, but out of delight. As an expression of love, as an expression of worship. And I give you my spirit. That deep in my spirit, I will be aware of your presence, feeling your pleasure, me feeling your pleasure as we walk hand in hand together in agreement so that my heart will always provide a home where you can dwell and reside comfortably to have your way and to have your will where my motto is what? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in my life here on earth as it is in heaven. And then he goes on that we would not be what conformed, squeezed into the mold of this world, that we would not develop this world's values or thinking or perspectives or attitudes and character and conduct, but would be transformed through God's word, through the renewal of our minds. Why? So that we would prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God as we submit to him as Lord. So I sacrifice all I am and I possess to Christ. Second, I seek to give Christ first place in everything. I seek to give Christ first place in everything. Colossians 1.18, so that he himself, Jesus, might come to have first place in everything. In everything. In everything. So I give Christ the first thoughts of every day. Isaiah 54, he awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as his disciple. So the first thing when I wake up in the morning, I turn my thoughts, I turn my heart to Him. I give Christ the first day of every week. On the first day of the week, we gathered with the local believers, Acts 20, verse 7. I give God the first out of what every paycheck. Honor the Lord by giving Him the first part of all your income, Proverbs 3, 9. I give Christ first place uh, by giving Him consideration in every decision. Proverbs 3, 6, and everything you do, put God first and he will direct you and crown your efforts with success. So he bestowed on him that name which is above every name and that title is Lord. And we're to surrender to him as Lord. And then what's the fourth question there in your sermon notes? What is the purpose of Christ's exaltation? What's the purpose of it all? The answer, glorification. And the glorification of who? Jesus, God. It says, he bestowed on him that name which is above every name that every knee should bow, every tongue that confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of what? God the Father. That's why we live. That's why we follow him as Lord. We live to extend his presence, to express his character, to demonstrate his power. We live to be a visible manifestation of God. As we surrender to Him as Lord, and as He begins to change and transform our lives into His likeness, that He would be put on display through us and be magnified, exalted, 
and glorified. And then the last question, what is the application? What, how should, what should be the primary application that we take of Christ's exaltation? And I'd put it in this word, humility. It should lead us to humility. Matthew 23, verses 11, 12. Listen now. Here it is. And this really sort of sums up Philippians chapter 2, 1, verse 1, to where we're at now. Uh, verse 11. He says, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. The greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be what? Exalted. James 4.10. Humble yourselves in the presence of God that he would what? Exalt you. So the path to blessing is to follow the path of humility. Because it's in that path of humility that you'll find God's blessing and that you'll find God's exaltation. Amen? Amen. So we've seen the exhortation to have the mind of Christ. And that as you express that mind, you can be guaranteed God's going to vindicate your life. He's going to exalt you, reward you, bless you as he did his son Jesus. Father, thank you for this wonderful truth uh, this morning concerning the exaltation of the mind of Christ. And Lord, uh, uh, next week we'll begin to examine how to express that mind. We, we've seen the pattern as it was lived out in Jesus. Uh, now, Lord, we look at that pattern and we say, oh, how is it possible that we could follow, that we could live such a life? And I thank you that uh, as we continue this marvelous study, uh, we'll discover next week uh, the keys uh, to knowing that mind of Christ lived out in us as we think Christ's thoughts and as we relate to one another uh, in love as he related to us. And so, Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you again for your mercy, for it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.